Thank you for your introduction, Harvey. Don't, oh, ah, he's gone. Okay, then I need somebody else. I have um, an outline here which I'd like distributed. There were 50 copies there. I don't think there are more than 50 of us in this room, but I might be wrong. Could I suggest that at first, anyway, husbands and wives take one copy between them (laughs) so as uh, to make sure that we start at least by everybody getting one. I shall appreciate that very much. No. Yes, pass them around the quickest way, please. That, oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> no. How are we doing? I am going to work from this outline. When you see it, I hope your heart will say, "Mm, this is pretty full, because in fact it is. I think that all the key thoughts of um, 1 Timothy are expressed there and uh, diagrammed out in a way which enables us to see the flow. I hope so, and uh, about an hour from now, I shall know whether that is actually the case or not. Well, while the, uh, the outlines are still... No, wait a minute. Have they gone right the way round? Yes, everybody has got access to one. Thank you. Are there any over? Because if so, husbands. No, well, I don't know. If there's uh, folks still needing one, um, I would say please distribute as far as we can go. Now, the key question for me is. Is there anyone who hasn't got access to one of those outlines? No, everybody, okay. Everybody then is able to cast an eye over them, over the outline, the the sheet, every time that I ask you to do that, as I shall, from time to time. Okay. Okay. Then we can get going. Let's join together in prayer. Holy Father, our purpose is to dig into your holy word and to feast on the wisdom contained there. Send your Holy Spirit into all our hearts, we pray that this desire of ours may be fulfilled in this next hour. Grant it for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.
Well, I hope that what happens now will not be simply anticlimax. I am offering you a Bible study of a particular sort. I'm not offering you a Bible class treatment. I'm not offering you um, anything that is so disciplined and drilled as to become mechanical, at least I don't think so. None of this has become mechanical for me, and I hope that none of it becomes mechanical for you. I have an image in my mind as I move into what I plan to do. The images of a realtor showing you over a house and uh, you, as you are led along, you look around, you see things perhaps that the realtor doesn't mention, the things which you might not have noticed if the realtor hadn't called attention to the things that he or she has mentioned. I hope that uh, this study will have something like that effect and that all of you will, at the end of our time together, have seen more than I have succeeded in putting into words. After all, this is the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit is the supreme interpreter of the Word of God. And though we can present ourselves uh, very lamely sometimes uh, as we ask for the Spirit's help, it's it's a regular part of my experience and surely yours too, that as one studies the Word, all sorts of things do become visible and impress you, even though whoever was leading the study never mentioned them. Well, let's see if, by the grace of God, something like that can happen this morning. So, let me begin with the simple fact that the letter, the second letter of Paul to Timothy is a letter. It was written as a letter. It wasn't written as anything else. And it wasn't written in the same way that letters were written by the Apostle to churches. Because Paul's letters to churches are really sermons of a kind. Uh, He's addressing the whole congregation all the time as he writes. And the analogy, therefore, is the preaching of a sermon where there's a congregation listening to what you say and you are addressing them rather than any individual within the congregation. Those letters, are, as I say, are much more like sermons than Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus 
which are basically one-on-one communications. A senior pastor, a veteran pastor, and an authority instructing, guiding, encouraging, nurturing a junior pastor who doesn't yet know as much as the apostle, isn't yet as skilled to see the insight of this or that divine truth as Paul himself is, so that it's teacher and learner the whole time uh, in a one-on-one way and uh, that gives these pastoral letters a flavour all their own. I think I'm only saying what everybody who has read the New Testament will have spotted on their own account and um, I'm only saying it in order to make sure that we're all of us appropriately tuned in to focus on what's going on in this letter. There is, I confess, something of whimsy in my choosing to title the study The First Visit to Second Timothy. But then there are going to be two visits. I don't know whether you noticed when the program for this uh, this semester's uh, Learners Exchange was uh, distributed. Um, it was said that Dr. Packer's contributions were to be announced. Well, actually, <laughs> um, I had given notice, plenty of notice, of what I proposed to do, but um, there was a a slip-up in communication, as sometimes happens in St. John's, we all know that, and and so it never got, got through to you, so that you could prepare your minds for what was going to happen today, and then a few weeks down the road once more. However, you know now that this is the first visit to Second Timothy, and if it, if it, if the study has to have a title all its own, um, I would give it the title "Gospel Bonds." And when I use that word "bonds," I'm not thinking of anything to do with the stock market. I'm thinking of uh, links which are particularly strong, particularly compelling, um, as uh, one person, that's uh, in this instance Timothy, is told the way to go by another person, that's Paul. Uh, And I have picked up, actually from John Stott, full disclosure, I picked up from John Stott's uh, exposition of Second Timothy the thought, the true thought I realized as I went through the epistle again in the light of it. Uh, he's picked up the thought that Paul is as much under the gospel as he wants Timothy 
to realize that he is under the gospel. Both of them are operating, in other words, under the gospel, as persons in ministry must ever do. And uh, so the, shall I say, the priorities, the thrust, the emphasis and actually the perspective that pulls the whole letter together centers in the gospel and um, in my outline which you now have before you you can see that at the end of each of the four main paragraphs uh, I have put what at the time I did the homework, I saw as the main message in section after section of the letter, and uh, the, parag- the, the, the main message for the four paragraphs, as you can see, is first one, guard the gospel, second, suffer for the gospel, third, continue in the gospel, fourth, Proclaim the gospel. Well, as I say, I followed John Stott in using those headings as a heading summary, summaries rather, as a focus of what's going on in each of the four four sections. I want to call them four paragraphs, but they're they subdivide into paragraphs in some cases. So I will call them four sections. Whether Paul himself was conscious of the logic of what he was doing in thus exhorting Timothy, we don't really know. This is actually always the case, you know, with preachers and teachers. If they're any good at their job, they communicate more than they realize that they're communicating. And those (coughs) listening pick up more than... uh, the teacher realizes that he has said. Well, Paul was a great teacher, so it shouldn't surprise us to find that Second Timothy, like other of his letters actually, is held together in this instance and in other cases, may I say, by the gospel, the thought of the gospel under which Paul ministers and under which He wants all those whom he instructs to live. No surprise, as I said, in discovering that this, in fact, is the perspective of the letter as a whole. The shadow of the gospel, or shall I say the emblem of the gospel, stands above it all and influences it all. Well, I hope that that's clear. I'm afraid I've spent more time saying it than I should have done. But anyway, this is fundamental. So uh, please excuse any impatience that you may feel (coughs) that I've been too long over the initial point. Um, It is, I repeat, fundamental. And as you'll see, everything is built under the shadow of the gospel and in terms of the gospel in a way which once you see it 
uh, is very enlightening and takes you really deep into understanding of what Paul is trying to get across to his second in command, which is what Timothy is, of course. All right. That's the kind of letter, then, that we have before us here. Uh, it's the second of two, um, of an interval of something like six or perhaps seven years separates them. Paul says at the beginning of First Timothy, chapter 1, verse 3 of that letter, uh, he left Paul at Ephesus, Ephesus when his own extended ministry at Ephesus had finished. He left Timothy as his second in command to pursue certain goals which um, he had had before him during his own ministry at Ephesus and which hadn't yet been fully achieved. And uh, some of those goals, as a matter of fact, recur in the second letter to Timothy, which means that Paul has every reason to think that they haven't been fully achieved yet. The dates, by the way, if you need them, are that um, 1 Timothy, um, written relatively soon after Paul has left Timothy in charge at Ephesus, that dates from 62. Scholars are pretty much agreed on that. And then 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last letter, uh, dates from 67 or 68. I won't go into the details of how those dates are fixed. I will simply say there's pretty much consensus about them. And it is important when you're uh, studying 2 Timothy to remember that there is a long, quite a long interval between it and 1 Timothy, which preceded it, um, though the uh, correspondence of uh, a number of the emphases in both makes you think that they belong closely together in time, which they don't, as well as in topic. Okay, then, we are in 68, probably, and Paul thinks he's um, facing the end of his life. And the whole letter is overshadowed by that sense of Paul's own situation. Had he written any letters to Timothy between first and our, uh, our first and our second? Well, we don't know, but um, I think the wise judgment is to say probably not, because if he had, there's every reason to expect to expect that they would have been preserved, same as first and second Timothy have been preserved. After all, Ta uh, Paul was who he was. He was an apostle. His words, his teaching, were the word of God. This was. Uh, this was a, a solid conviction on the part of the young churches 
which he founded. And so, if uh, he had written a letter, uh, any letter to anybody, you would expect it to have been preserved. Conclusion then, Paul wrote two letters to Timothy, not more. He wrote one letter to Titus, not more, and so on. Okay, and this is a letter written the way that letters were written in the first century AD. I've got a feeling that I've talked to you about this before, but uh, I'll just say it again, if it is again, quickly, so that you're up to the minute. Um, Letters in those days were written by dictation to a secretary. Uh, There was a secretary class. The scholars speak of it as a class of amanuenses. Well, that's just um, a classical word for secretary. Uh, You hire the amanuensis, you call him in, then you dictate your letter to him, and he inscribes it on a wax tablet... Then he goes away and makes a fair copy, um, at least what he hopes is a fair copy, and brings it back to you to see if uh, you accept it as expressing what you want to say. There may be final corrections that you need to make. Um, Any of us, by the way, who have had secretaries and dictated letters to them know what this is like, so I don't need to go into details about this. Yes, you look at the first transcript of what's been taken down at your dictation, make any corrections that you need to make, then the secretary goes off and makes a fair copy for transmission. And then you have to make your own arrangements for the carrying of the letter to its destination and its delivery to the person uh, to whom it's addressed, or the persons. And that's there was no postal service, you see, in those days. So that was a matter of private arrangement every time. Paul obviously preferred to send his letters uh, by the hand of um, one of his regular assistants, who would be going, you see, to the place where the letter was going to be delivered. Um, Sometimes, however, one can be quite sure that that arrangement couldn't be made, and then, well, you had to make an ad hoc arrangement with somebody who was travelling. In those days, without any postal service, um, persons who travelled between population centres were very ready to be hired to distribute letters and um, they would provide a trustworthy service in practice. We don't know how 2 Timothy got from Paul to Timothy, but uh, certainly it was a matter of specific arrangement that this letter, having been put together, as I say, with the help of a secretary, um, would be delivered um, as Paul wanted. Now, it's a personal letter, but it's more than that. The commentators make the point, most of them anyway, 
that uh, when Paul wrote to a person, that person regularly had, uh, well, actu- actually had in these three ca- these cases, in Timothy and Titus, uh, actually had a public identity, a public role, was pastor, in fact, of a congregation, and Paul, naturally, put into the letter all the things that he thought his uh, addressee might need to say to uh, the, 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 the congregation that he served. And in any case, um, you can see that without there being a postal, national postal service, which makes the delivery of, of letters something you can take for granted, at least you used to be able to, how it will be two years down the road is anybody's guess. But, uh, <laughs> um, as, I, as I say, um, it, uh, it was quite an event. This is the point I want to make. Quite an event for a letter to arrive for the pastor, Timothy or Titus, as the case may be, or and um, people would discover that uh, oh, pastor had a letter from Paul. What did it say? Tell us, pastor, please. Paul anticipates, I'm sure, that this is what's going to happen. And he writes his letters to his two juniors in a way which um, makes both of them, well, three of the letters, fully quotable to the congregation uh, if that's what was called for. And Paul expected that it would be. So the letters are, though they, they touch on intimate matters, they're a bit more formal in style than, say, a personal letter from you or me to someone whom we were trying to advise on some matter central to their life uh, might well be. Because Paul knows he's going to be quoted. All right? All these things need to be said at some stage in order to show you the wavelength um, on which our minds should tune in if we're to get the full thrust and weight and impact of these pastoral letters, which, as Harvey said right at the beginning, they grow on you. Um, And you realize that whereas first time you read them, you thought that uh, effect, or you felt perhaps, that effectively there's no more here than just uh, a set of uh, a set of ad hoc instructions. There is, in fact, a great deal more here, in the way of words, not simply to Timothy's and Titus's heart, but to the hearts of the congregations and the pastoral needs, perhaps, of those congregations, as Paul, senior pastor, though at a distance, um, feels that he can see quite clearly and needs to say something about. 
Well, again, forgive me for being long and laboured about that point, but I do want us to tune in, uh, to tune in properly. And now another point about tuning, tuning in. Paul thinks of Timothy not only as his second in command, not only as um, a relative veteran, not as much of a veteran as he is himself, of course, but uh, a person who's had a lot of experience of working in ministry with Paul and uh, can be addressed as one who has learned all sorts of things from that period of uh, working with Paul in the flesh. So, um, you, you, you have Paul taking a good deal um, for granted. I'm not saying that it's hidden. Um, it's implicit in the text. If you look, realizing, now, wait a minute, this comes out of uh, a, a, an extended period of working with Paul, uh, by Timothy means, so that Paul can uh, strike notes which he knows will be familiar to Timothy. But Timothy, before he became Paul's second in command, was Paul's convert. Um, he was the, the, uh, the son of a devout Jewish family, devout at least on the uh, the, the women's side, father was a Greek, but uh, mother and grandmother, they had been devout Jews, and they brought up Timothy in that way. And uh, so when Paul met Timothy at Troas on his second missionary journey, um, how can I say it? Well, I'll say it in the way that... It, that uh, 19th and 20th century evangelists might have put it, Timothy was ripe for the plucking. And Paul led Timothy to Christ. That's what we're being told. And he calls Timothy, my child. Does it more than once, actually, in both letters. Um, not only by second in command, but my child, whom I've discipled right from the beginning of uh, Timothy's Christian life. And all that is assumed, too, in the letters. If you look for it, you can see where Paul is, I think you can see where Paul is um, reminiscing in his own, in his own mind about um, the way that he discipled Timothy and drilled Timothy in this, that and the other aspect of discipleship. And uh, in chapter 1, verse 2 of this letter, well, it's Timothy, my child. Technon is the noun used in the Greek, and technon is a word regularly used of a young child. Uh, my child, then, Paul is saying, whom I have brought up in the faith right from the beginning of your Christian life. And Timothy, I love you, and I don't love you any the less because you have become my professional assistant. The affection which made me a sort of para-parent to you, 
at the start. That affection continues, continues at each stage, continues now. So, here you've got, um, how can I say it, uh, a combination of care to say things that can be shared with a congregation and um, deep personal intimacy, as Paul recalls and asks Timothy to recall uh, the many years that they've had together and the way in which Paul himself has nurtured Timothy from spiritual infancy up to, as I say, second in command level. Okay, I hope all that is clear. Uh, Timothy has now a very important position in Ephesus. He really is the para-apostle. I mean, Paul the Apostle has ministered to the church for two or three years. Now he is going, but leaving Timothy as his deputy. So, Timothy is to be treated by the congregation with the same respect that Paul expected in his own ministry, because he, that is Paul, was uh, the spokesman for Christ just like that and what Paul wants uh, everybody to understand is that as Timothy passes on what he heard learned from Paul as he says Paul says explicitly that that's what you have to do what Timothy is to do it's the beginning of chapter 2 so Paul expects and calls for the same respect for the teaching Timothy gives as he called for and expected in relation to the teaching that he'd given himself. Now, all those uh, aspects of uh, things have to be borne in mind as you seek to interpret Second Timothy and apply to us, and indeed to one's own self, what's passing here between the apostle and his deputy. Okay? And you find, as I said right at the beginning, that all of it is shaped by the gospel. Uh, we shall return to that in our second study. And the gospel itself, of course, is centered upon and declarative of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now enthroned as Lord of the cosmos and himself the one whom Paul serves and whom Timothy serves. Okay, so that's where we are. And... Now, look at the first paragraph. first paragraph that is to say is analysed in on my, my sheet. Where the heading is Paul's affection for Timothy the person and the subheading is a Christian relationship demonstrated. 
because we've only got a limited amount of time, I have to go through a lot of this at high speed, and I can't be as full in spelling things out as I would wish to be. I hope you see, to finish um, overviewing the outline uh, by the end of this talk, and that means we got quite a distance to go. Um, I should think uh, about 11 inches, if you measure it by ordinary standards. <laughs> or um, what, does, what does that amount to? 25 centimetres, perhaps. <laughs> now, heading, Paul's affection for Timothy the person. If you write a letter to someone who, with whom you've had a very deep relationship, and then uh, a long period in which you haven't been communicating with each other, well, you will spend the first paragraph or two of your letter recapturing the intimacy and the warmth of that relationship. And that's what Paul does in first, sorry, in Second Timothy chapter 1. I summarize the ideas. I think uh, all I can do here is um, simply read what I've written. First two verses, Paul greets Timothy, his beloved child. It's a very warm and weighty way of, um, as it were, embracing uh, Timothy on paper. Uh, for various reasons, we haven't been in touch with each other for the last five or six years but you're still my beloved child, Timothy. Terrific, actually, as an expression of affection. You share the grace that I share. Yes, it's all here in the greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And the letter will be written in terms of that deep and powerful affection picked up and reasserted here, reasserted in this way. <clears throat> Verse 3, Paul thanks God for Timothy, for whom he prays. Thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. It's a bold thing for him to say, actually. What, he's, what he means Timothy to understand, I think, and what, he, what we, as reading the letter over their shoulder, uh, also need to understand, is that at first Paul was perfectly sincere in believing that um, this claim that uh, Jesus' apostles were making that he was, Jesus was the Messiah and was raised from the dead, was now alive and was now in fact enthroned as Lord of the universe, he thought that was scandalous error. Where he began to go wrong, one may fairly boldly say, is when he judged that it was the kind of error that ought to be suppressed at all costs, so he became the number one hammer of the Christians 
arresting them, imprisoning them, treating them very hard, and indeed starting his career as an enforcer of the old pre-Christian orthodoxy, starting that career as the guy who held their coats while they stoned Stephen to death, you remember? It was then that Paul went dreadfully off the rails. He shouldn't have behaved that way in any case, but um, he did, and that was what he had to repent of when Christ met him on the Damascus Road. Well, Paul now is saying to Timothy, I thank God for you, I pray for you, you are with me, sharing in God's grace. And verses 4 and 5, I long to see you, I know you're a real believer, that's in, I think, for Timothy to be able to quote to members of his own congregation. Uh, Timothy, though he's an adult convert, well, Timothy has a pedigree which goes back at least two generations and gives him status within the fellowship, which Paul hopes that all Christians will bear in mind. Uh, and then he goes on to say, verses 16, sorry, verses 6 and 7, he wants Timothy to be spiritually on fire. I think Harvey will resonate with me when I say scholars do wonderful things both viva voce and on paper in exploring the realities behind the New Testament documents and they ought to be praised for the good work they do but if you read the books that scholars write inevitably for their own peers in the academic guild, you will find that all the emphasis, or nearly all the emphasis, is on the brain work, and there's very little emphasis on the heart work to which the truth that these folk seek to serve is supposed to lead. Now, when Paul writes to Timothy, he is as concerned about heart work as he is about orthodoxy. And he says, you see, in verse 6, let me actually read it as the ESV puts it, um, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What's the significance of that? Well, in the Bible, you lay hands on the person for whom you're praying. And Paul is thinking back to an occasion when Timothy was committed to ministry as Paul's assistant. And, well, Paul himself led in prayer with his hands laid on Timothy. Um, and... Uh, he reminds Timothy of that and uh, says to Timothy, I want you to fan into flame the gift of God 
that I prayed would be in you for this ministry and that I believe is in you now you're, now you're committed to this ministry um, I want you to be spiritually on fire personally I wish that some of my fellow scholars were a bit more forthcoming and vigorous at just that point and then the books that they write would not run the risk of boring readers in the way that sometimes they now do well this is Paul's wish and prayer for Timothy I want you to be spiritually on fire I want you to be showing verse 7 the Spirit, this is actually the Holy Spirit in action, translated though with a small s, because it's the action, that is the attitude and, um, how can I say, personal style uh, that Paul wants Timothy to show, that he's talking about rather than the Holy Spirit who is generating the uh, warmth, the passion, the zeal, the emphasis which marks his ministry. No, God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. This is the first of a number of references which we'll be looking at in detail um, in the second of these studies. Uh, what's the focus of them? Uh, I can express it in the way that very recently it has come to be a centre of interest for New Testament expositors who are confronted with the way in which through the Spirit of God Christianity shapes itself in Asia where in Asia Instead of um, the great emphasis on guilt, guilt of sin, um, as the supreme problem from which we all need salvation, the great emphasis is on the shame of sin, as in ancient cultural terms. An equally great problem from which we all need salvation. Of course, it's a, it's a both and. Uh, I'll say more about that when we're together for the second, second of these studies, like I said. But um, here is Paul talking to Timothy, whom he sees as um, a potential victim all the time of the shame culture um, which inhibits folk from fully expressing the vitality of the faith that is theirs uh, fear, embarrassment indecisiveness distrust, anxiety arrogance and anger sometimes as a cover, cover up for one's feeling of uh, insecurity and not quite being sure of yourself. Uh, <coughs> that's the uh, 
I'll call it the evil of the shame culture, keeps you back from being an uninhibited disciple. Just as uh, unforgiven guilt keeps you, I mean, guilt whose forgiveness you have not consciously appropriated, that keeps you from enjoying the freedom that is ours in Christ. We are free in Christ, yes, the cross ensured that, but we don't know, well, we, if, well, that is the people who are victims of the, uh, <coughs> of the, uh, the guilt culture, we don't know that we are free. So we don't experience the full joy of freedom and we don't express that freedom powerfully in the way that we would if we were free and consciously rejoicing in our freedom inside, if I can put it that way. Am I coming clear? I hope so. Um, well, anyway, well, when Paul refers to the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, which God has generated in us, he says, in you, in me, and in the, the, so many more healthy Christians, um, <coughs> That, that, that now that you have <clears throat> now that I remind you that that's what God has given us you Timothy make sure that you that you grasp and appreciate the full glory of that gift and express the full emphasis of the new life that you're now living in the power of that spirit of it's really confidence in God. Um, but again, more of, it, more of that next time. Anyway, um, that's what Paul is thinking of, he says, when he asks, when, when he prays, that Timothy will fan into flame the gift that God has given him. Am I coming clear? Two gifts, freedom from guilt and freedom from insecurity. One can say it that way. And both those gifts generate force in ministry, in service. I don't mean necessarily the sort, the sort of force that uh, hammers people, but the force that makes an impression on people so that they don't forget you after your conversation with them is finished. And they remember what you've said about Christ. Well, this is what I want for you, Timothy. This is... Uh, Paul, and I want to say this before I say anything else. And so he says it. Uh, and then verse 8 begins by striking the shame note. Do not be ashamed, specifically, of the testimony about the Lord, nor me, his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, and so on. Um, it, uh, it, that's the beginning of a paragraph in which Paul himself says, in effect, take me as an example. Uh, look at the way I suffer as I do, opening words of verse 12, but I'm not ashamed... Here we are, not ashamed, 
for I know whom I believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He has his hands on me as I seek to keep my hands on the new life that I now find myself blessed with and uh, which I see I myself seek to fan into flame every day of my life. This is the preferred translation that you find in most of the versions, most of the commentaries, though there is an alternative translation which is actually in the King James and it's in the footnote of the RSV giving this as an alternative. Uh, I know whom I believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Um, no, there's, there's a hymn with uh, those, that version of the wor words as the chorus. Maybe you know it. Well, this is Paul saying to Timothy at length, by the grace of God, I am, in this important sense, beyond shame as a weakening force in my life. And I want you to be beyond shame, that is embarrassment, uh, inhibition, as a weakening force in your life and your ministry. <coughs> And uh, the, um, the chapter ends with him making reference to the fact that uh, some people have served him well, some people have not, but um, that doesn't make any difference to this point. Paul wants Timothy to know how some people have behaved, all right? He tells Timothy, but that doesn't qualify the point. <laughs> of um, not being the victim of shame and, and inhibition. Uh, that point stands in just the form in which Paul has made it, and it's basic to everything that's going to follow. All right, we spent more time on that than I hoped we would need to. Nobody is to blame, of course, for that except myself. I apologize. As so often, I'm behind badly behind so that I have to say to you if you look at the headings of paragraphs, my paragraphs or my divisions three and two, three and four you'll see straight away the broad fields of thought which these next three sections explore and when we come to look at this epistle second time round, I shall go into detail about some of that, as I have gone into detail about the first section. Sorry that I haven't got further, but well, one does what one can. And, um, it, it was once said, you know, about prayer. Pray as you can, and don't try to pray as you can't. And that, I've always thought, was a word of great wisdom. And um, what I'm saying now is that we who teach are subject to a similar rubric.
teach as you can and don't try to teach as you can't. Some people can be brief and some of us, <laughs> in, our, in our labor to be clear, find that we're taking more time saying things than ever we'd bargain for. Well, guilty as charged, and <laughs> I can only apologize to you. And it would be silly for me to try and say anything more than just gone 10 o'clock. It'll be much more useful for us all if now we begin dialogue and uh, come to the end of monologue. So <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. Um, any comments, friends, on any of the points that I've raised or any further points in the first chapter of first, uh, sorry, of Second Timothy. Just a question. Uh, you mentioned, I believe, that this would be a letter that uh, Timothy could read to his congregation, or at least express, Quote, yes. express his congregation. Mm-hmm. congregation. Yeah. I wondered if at that time, what, um, I guess resources is the word to use, Timothy would have as he pastored that congregation in the five, six years between leaving Paul and getting this? Good question. We can be sure, I think, that um, Timothy would have a copy of all the Old Testament scriptures and would use it as a basis for teaching regularly. He might also have a copy of other letters that Paul had written, because Paul had written some other letters by this time, um, other letters that Paul had written uh, to churches, uh, because we know that before the end of the century, those letters were circulating around all the churches. So it's not unlikely that... um, passing on copies to Paul's special deputy um, would already be starting to happen. Um, Now, that's only guesswork, but I think it's plausible guesswork and that uh, the supposition that Paul wouldn't have these documents is unplausible guesswork. Uh, How many other copies of the Old Testament in Greek, which was the standard version that was passed around all the synagogues and all the Christian churches, as far as we know. Um, How how many more folk in the congregation might have some or all of the Old Testament in Greek? We don't know. Uh, And it's impossible to guess, frankly. So, they're there. Um, the way of uh, plausibility is to say the only thing that we can guess at confidently is that Paul himself sorry, Timothy himself has a copy of the Old Testament and he uses it 
for expository purposes. In 1 Timothy, there's First um, Timothy chapter 4, there's an admonition from Paul to Timothy given, well, it's five or six years before he writes Second Timothy, which says, give attention to reading, uh, which has been il- il- enlarged slightly in the RSV, so that, sorry, not the RSV, the ESV, so that there's no question about its meaning. It isn't private reading that Paul is talking about, and this rendering makes that plain. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Exhortation and teaching, obviously, which will come out of the Scriptures that you're reading. So, we can be pretty, pretty sure, pretty certain that um, Timothy was doing this on a regular basis and uh, filling in, shall I say, filling in the the full frame of uh, truth uh, from the gospel and the teaching that he had had from Paul's own lips as of course the Ephesians had themselves that's the best I can do in answering your question nobody I think knows more than that yeah sure. um, I'm thinking of another resource and um, following on from George's question uh, could you comment briefly on what the structure of the church would have been that Timothy was looking after did he have help uh, with this message, were they organized in any discernible way? Well, first of all, we don't know and can only guess the size of the congregation. Nobody really has any idea. So all of us just about guess that there were about a hundred of them. There might have been only 50 and there might have been 200. We we really don't know. However, guessing in terms of a congregation of 100, uh, we know from 1 Timothy, uh, well, and actually um, uh, from Titus also, there were elders. Well, that's the way that the synagogue was organized. Uh, Christians simply borrowed that pattern from the synagogue. So it seems pretty obviously the source, you see. And Paul uh, gives detailed qualifications which elders must, ought to, must fulfill uh, before they're appointed. Um, how many elders would there have been in the church? We don't know. Five, ten, fifteen, your guess is as good as mine. You can see that if it was five or ten or fifteen, the dynamics of the eldership team would have been very different in uh, each case, according to how many of them there were in the team. Um, (coughs) Then there were deacons. All right, again, we don't know how many deacons there would have been alongside the elders. It's evident that the deacons 
priority was uh, meeting material needs in the congregation, whereas the business of elders was not so. It's not. It's not stressed that they should teach the truth, though being apt to teach is one of the qualifications that's called, that's called for but that they should keep the congregation in order in light of the truth. That is, that they should be experts in the applying of gospel truth to professed Christian people. Well, that's, I think, about as far as we can go, Sheila. We don't, we, we don't know anything more than that, and we can only so guess how it worked out. Hmm? That would be very uplifting and helpful and directional for people who would share in a teaching, preaching ministry. And the elders would be enlightened by it as well as Timothy then. Well, that's true. But here. Sharing in hmm. the outcome of, of uh, what Paul wanted them to do. Well, that's right. But we're, what can I say, we're traveling by guesswork when we uh, elaborate that thought because we simply haven't got the evidence. Yes, at the back there. Yeah, it just seems to John. be implying that this is a lot of group dynamic and how a group gets along better and functions better. And I was just thinking of the AA, how it was set up by a Protestant mm-hmm. Catholic minister. They might have maybe used some examples from this to get an a- the AA groups functioning properly, maybe a diocese functioning properly too by using examples from Timothy uh, to be better functioning affects the parishes better that I think is a, a very no well that's a, that's a very pregnant comment John thank you for it again we haven't got any details you see all that we can do is um, pick up the thought and run with it how well uh, godly faith and order would have been maintained or established, preserved, whatever verb we need there, um, if in fact the leaders in the congregation had made uh, the use we envisage of the material in the uh, in well specifically the pastoral letters. Yes, it's uh, rational Christian guesswork. Thank, but thank you for it, John. It's it's very valuable. Christian uh, understanding always has in it a fair element of um, plausible Christian guesswork. One offers a guess, gives reasons for it, and then uh, let the Christian world consider the proposal and argue for it or against it as they think fit. That's the way it goes. Now, we still have a few minutes if there are other things. Yes? In your title, you have Second Timothy, Nurturing a Troubled Young Pastor, and you mention in the first chapter um, that Paul was trying to encourage him to be spiritually on fire, mm-hmm. so he was having troubles, you know, having the zeal that he needed to have, according to Paul, plus 
he might be a little bit timid with the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, can you elaborate on any other troubles that he might have, Timothy might have had that Paul would be addressing? Well, it does seem from what is said in First Timothy that uh, Timothy was to a degree timid as you know human beings uh, vary at this point some are very um, upfront pushy and some are uh, just the opposite and they tend to hang back and uh, allow themselves to be inhibited um, in a way that actually restricts their usefulness and I've already told you that I'm going to go to town a bit on this, talking about the shame culture or the shame aspect of culture uh, when we meet again over Second Timothy. Um, but uh, yes, um, in general terms, one has to say, Paul does seem to know Timothy through and through he knows what to say to encourage Timothy and he knows what to say to uh, fire Timothy up so that he's not restricted by his own natural inhibitions. And that's something which it takes great wisdom to do, but actually it's something which in leadership it's absolutely vital that you manage to do. Otherwise, the potential of the people, some of the people that you're leading as your subordinates, will never be fully realized because you won't, you won't know how to deploy it. Uh, and anybody who has had a leadership position, say in education or um, uh, administration in a firm that is not too large, for personal factors just to fall out of the equation altogether. Um, we'll, we'll know what I'm talking about because you see this in action. Uh, some leaders know how to get the best out of those whom they lead and some don't. And it's always bad news when they don't. But it's a fact of life. Such people do sometimes get put into leadership positions and they slow everything down. I'm sticking my neck out, of course, because I'm only a pure academic when all is said and done. What do I know about any of this? But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I have read the pastoral epistles, I suppose. <laughs> I can say that, yeah. Would Timothy know that um, Paul is awaiting execution? Well, Paul tells him explicitly towards the end of the letter. Whether he would know when he started reading the letter first time round, I don't know. But um, Paul puts it down in chapter 4 as if <clears throat> it's likely to be news to Timothy that is something that Timothy didn't know until he read these words. For I'm about to be poured out as a, like a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. 
I fought the good fight, I finished the the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. So on. And then the next verse, which is verse 9 of chapter 4, Do your best to come to me soon. You get the overtones? I may not be here very long. I don't know how long it will be before the axe falls, but I do think I'm on my way to execution. That's what Paul says in chapter 4. So, again, my guess is that Timothy hadn't realized that things were quite so, uh, how can I say it, so, so drastic, reached such a drastic point in Paul's in Paul's circumstances but he is writing from prison and he goes on in chapter 4 to talk about how he got on at his first appearance in court uh, where he says that uh, the Lord stood by him and um, he was able to witness faithfully to the, uh, the tr- to the truth of the gospel And he goes on to say, and the Lord will continue to stand by me until I reach his heavenly kingdom. Once again, this is Paul looking forward to his death, his execution, as um, something that will happen fairly soon. But this is just Paul's expectation, whether it happened quite as quickly as he thought it was going to. Nobody really knows. You must allow me to keep underlining that there are so many things, about, so many factual details um, uh, in, the New, in the New Testament uh, milieu that, where we can only guess, we don't really know. And so, ultimately, I don't know how much or how little um, Timothy knew about Paul's circumstances. I guess, though, that Paul is now telling Timothy that things are uh, more grim than perhaps you realized. One can't say more than I think on that. Um, yeah. Yeah, just to ask you a question as you brought this out, um, what do you think about Paul's arrest? Because some people say, you know, he was taken in the end of Acts 28, and he was executed afterwards, and others say no, he was let go, he went as far west as Spain or Britain, mm-hmm. preaching the gospel, he was rearrested, and this time instead of being in a house, he was put into the rat prison, and, you know, then he was brought out and tried and executed, so do you, mm-hmm. what's your take on all that? Well... I'm still in the land of guesswork, so are you. Uh, But, um, no, I think that that second scenario is the more likely one. I mean, that he was released and that he did get to Spain, as he'd hoped to do, tells the the Romans that in the letter to them. Um, And now this is is a re-arrest. And... (coughs) A rearrest with more, more shall I say, of threatening in it with regard to the outcome than had been the case with his first arrest, which was, after all, only, I use the word only advisedly, only Paul taking an evasive maneuver to prevent himself being killed in an ambush 
uh, as uh, a posse of soldiers took him to wait a minute, where was it? From Caesarea to somewhere. Um, you remember, to, yeah, his uh, his um, cousin was it, or his nephew, uh, got to know of the plot, told Paul, and so Paul said, "I appeal to Caesar," in order to ensure that he wouldn't be sent with this posse of soldiers into the ambush. But then, um, when Paul <coughs> when Paul got to Rome. Nobody had any, nobody had anything, it seems, against him. And that's the point at which Luke finishes his story. Uh, and having said that, you said it first, of course. Uh, uh, let me say, um, Luke is unquestionably a skillful writer, a literary artist. And he's writing to a word length, as all the evangelists do. And... Um, his word length brings him out, shall I say, on a note of triumph. He stops the story um, with the uh, declaration, Paul is in Rome, so the gospel is in Rome. Paul is preaching the gospel in Rome, and Paul is free to do it. So the final note in my stories, says Luke, is of the gospel triumphing in this situation. Yes, the, ev the evangelist is in prison, but he's in prison, well, under, he's under house arrest. Um, that means in prison, in prison in a broad sense. But the gospel is free. Uh, and Luke, I think, wants the reader of Acts to uh, end up with that sense of the situation coming across to him very powerfully. Um, well, that being, that being so, um, there's nothing in the way of overtones there to suggest that Paul was, uh, on his first arrival at Rome, was um, straight away put under arrest with an expectation of a trial that would prove um, that, 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 would, that would prove to be a final condemnation and bring about his death there was nothing against him at that point at the end of 2 Timothy 4 they've got something against him and he's already been in, in court once and he'll have to be in court again that's the best I can do I'm afraid that's a lot of guesswork filling in a little bit of information which is ours. Okay? I think you want to close the meeting, I, I don't you? It's, it's 10.20 now, so that's so mm -hmm. we pass where we usually... Uh, I like the classical scholar who said, uh, uh, we don't know how Paul died, and he was, he was thinking about that, and it was roughly when Nero was Roman Caesar. Well, yeah, well, that's, that's and right. then the scholar okay. says... Uh, the day would come when men would name their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's, that's the best, that's a great outcome of the end of Paul's life. We're going to meet him in heaven, Paul. <laughs>